Read with me chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. We've been studying through 1 Corinthians, and so this morning we're going to read all of chapter 8, and then I'll share a a couple thoughts with you guys. Um, Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Let me give you a little snapshot of what's going on here in the church in Corinth, okay? Paul's answering a question that's been presented to him in a letter that we don't actually have, which is why, depending on the version you have, maybe some of the words are in quotes, okay? He's quoting back to them words that they said to him. And the question that, that he has been presented with is sort of apparent from the questions or from the answer that he gives in this passage. And this is the question. Is it okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And it may seem like a silly and irrelevant question to us today since there really aren't too many pagan temples these days that are still doing animal sacrifices. I'm not aware of any in Maricopa, at least. But it is actually a very important question for us to consider, an important question for the church to kind of delve into. Let me set the scene. In the previous weeks as we've studied 1 Corinthians, we've learned that Corinth was a pagan city. And there were a plethora of temples, some big, some little, but they were all over the place, okay? Corinth was a town that had a lot of pagan worship taking place. And part of the pagan worship experience was to sacrifice animals to the so-called gods of these temples. And gods is also in quote depending, quotes depending on your translation. Um, but after the meat had been sacrificed it would then inevitably find its way into the local marketplaces where it would be sold and consumed by average everyday people just like you and me, okay? A portion that the animal would be sacrificed, a portion of the meat would go to the temple priests, priests, priestesses, the families that brought the meat, and then would end up in the marketplace sold, okay? And it was no secret that because of the many temples in Corinth, probably the vast majority of the meat being consumed in the city of Corinth were leftover portions from pagan sacrifices. Okay, more than that, likely you probably couldn't find a burger anywhere in the city of Corinth that didn't come from some sort of sacrificial ceremony. 
And as a result of the fact that this meat was tainted by being a part of pagan worship experiences, the Christians in Corinth were divided about whether or not to eat the meat that was available to them. Okay? It's not like today where you can go to any grocery store and there's just meat prepackaged for you. You had to get what was available locally and more than likely it was coming out of a local temple. Okay? So from this division within the church, there emerged two camps, two, two points of view. The first camp were those who possessed knowledge, which is what Paul begins the chapter talking about. These were the people who had knowledge. They were the ones in the church in Corinth who understood that meat is just meat. Okay? It doesn't matter what process it's been through. Meat is meat. And idols are really just a lump of gold, a lump of clay, a lump of wood that's been shaped to look like something significant. Okay? It's just worthless materials. These were people who understood that there is no God except the God that Christians worshipped. So whatever pagans may do in their temple, although it may be immoral, it was really just nonsensical and meaningless as far as Christians were concerned. You obviously don't take part in the worship, but whatever happens after the worship with the meat, etc., it's sort of irrelevant because what they're worshiping is non-existent. It's unimportant. These people then, the knowledgeable people, felt free to peruse the pagan markets, go out, find meat, find themselves a nice juicy filet mignon, cook that bad boy up on Father's Day after church, and even though it may have been offered to whatever, the god of shiny things, I don't know, whatever gods they were worshiping at said temple, they felt totally comfortable serving that filet mignon up to other Christians in their after-church parties or barbecues. Okay? Eating it themselves, sharing it with other believers, whatever the case may be. And these were the Christians who fell into what I would call the strong, they, they thought of themselves as strong Christians, knowledgeable Christians, and their party was what I've put in your notes, the Liberty Party. They were the ones who felt free. They understood that because of our freedom in Christ from rules and regulations, the Old Testament was filled with all of these crazy rules and regulations. For example, on Sunday, it was against God's law, supposedly, to walk more than like 60 steps on Sunday. Because if you did that, then you were working and you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. Okay? Some of you were like, that sounds like a great rule. I would just sit and watch football. It's like 20 steps to my fridge so I could have a couple of beers and wings and we'd be good to go, right? But this was the team that, or, or this was the party that understood that with freedom in Jesus, all of the silly rules and regulations we no longer are subject to. It sort of becomes irrelevant because Christ has upheld the law for us. Jesus set us free from the law with grace. And as long as what we do is within God's moral guidelines, please understand, there are still moral guidelines even within freedom. As long as we're within those moral guidelines, what we do is okay. And this is the Liberty Party, the Freedom Party. Okay. Now, in opposition to the Liberty Party, you had the Law Party. 
And these were the people who weren't comfortable with the idea of eating meat that had been recently sacrificed to the god of shiny things or whatever other god it may have been. They believed that it was best to abstain, to not partake in meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And my guess is they probably had a real good reason for thinking this, although more than likely you and I probably agree with the Liberty Party. The Law Party was probably from the camp that thought that uh, meat was unacceptable if it had been sacrificed to idols for this reason. Because a large number of these people who belonged to the Law Party had probably been pagans. They'd probably spent a significant portion of their life worshiping idols and taking place in idol sacrifices and taking that worship home with them as meat and eating that meat as a continued act of worship to false gods and idols. And they were probably recent Christian converts who were extremely uncomfortable with the idea of involuntarily endorsing pagan worship rituals by consuming meat that they bought in the market that had been a part of pagan worship. Okay? They knew what went on inside of the temples these pagan acts of worship, they knew the immorality and the crude behavior that went along with animal sacrifice. And they decided, we don't want to be a part of it in any way, shape, or form. We don't think it's appropriate. They probably felt then that purchasing pagan sacrificial meat would cause them to actually engage, at least by association, in acts of worship to idols themselves. Okay? And because they were devoted to Jesus then, they didn't want any part of it. Jesus, they believed, is Lord and Savior, the only one true God. And so we are not going to partake in idol worship in any way, shape, or form. And where they went from there is taking it to the extreme and saying that they believed that other Christians around them then should subject themselves to the same rules and regulations that they chose to follow so that there would be harmony and unity in the church. This is the law party. Okay? These are the people who put rules in place that weren't absolutely necessary, even if they may have been beneficial. Okay? Not absolutely necessary, but probably beneficial. And their belief was, rules benefit the entire church. There are some guidelines that are good. There are many rules that Christians should follow for the sake of the greater good, even if they're not necessarily strictly biblical. So both parties had what I would say is a valid point, some great wisdom to offer to the church. Let me cover it. The Liberty Party, the Freedom Party, was basking in the grace of Jesus and proclaiming their freedom in him. I don't have to be righteous of my own. Jesus has made me righteous. Therefore, as long as I live morally, I'm free to kind of do whatever I want in the gray areas. As long as something is not outside of God's moral guidelines, it can be okay. For example, you're free to go to Disneyland, which I would say is the greatest temple to uh, American Christian, or I'm sorry, American consumerism that you can possibly think of. Okay, and I love Disneyland, but it is a pagan temple of worship to consumerism. It really is. Uh, 
It's fine for you to go, though. Just don't bow down to Mickey Mouse. You know what I'm saying? You're free to be amazed at the mad basketball skills of somebody like LeBron James and have him as your hero in your life if you want to. You're fine watching basketball, even though it's filled with advertisements, which are, again, just worship to the pagan god of consumerism and materialism. It's okay for you to go to basketball games and say you love LeBron James. Okay? Just don't bow down to him. Just remember who gave him the gifts and talents that he has. Remember who created him. All of his skills are really just an arrow pointing to God. Okay? So let's not be confused. The Liberty Party said, we know there's no God but God. And because we understand that, because we have that knowledge, we're free to go to Disneyland. We're free to watch basketball games. It doesn't cause us to take our eyes off of Jesus. But the law party was also right. Okay? As Christians, we should have boundaries and guidelines in place in our lives. Just because we can do something in our Christian freedom doesn't mean that we should. Okay? Just because... We can, just because we're free to do it, doesn't necessarily make it beneficial. It doesn't mean that we should do it. It's good and right, then, as a Christ follower, to sometimes distance and disassociate ourselves from certain aspects of paganism or consumerism. It's good to draw lines and to have boundaries. It benefits us in our walk with Jesus, and it ultimately benefits the church when we make decisions like that financially, with our thought lives, with what it is that we do with our time, our energy, our talents, there should be some boundaries that we draw. So both the Freedom Party and the Liberty, I'm sorry, the Liberty Party and the Law Party were right. They had some great things to contribute to what the church in Corinth was walking through. However, both parties were actually also wrong. And that's why Paul thinks that it's necessary to bring a word here to the church in Corinth. Okay? To bring the church back to a dynamic, loving relationship with each other and with Christ. The Liberty Party, who thought that they were free to do whatever they want, they were going too far. And it was progressing into pride and arrogance. And it was causing division in the church. Their attitude was beginning to sound something like this. Well, I'm not one of those pansy, weak, new convert Christians. I have a vibrant and deep relationship with Jesus. So it's okay for me to do whatever I want. Those weak Christians, sure, they need to have guidelines, but because I'm strong in my faith, I'm free to do what I want. It's okay. And their pride and their arrogance were causing some who were a part of the church to feel second class. You ever felt like this at a church? You ever walked in and they start talking about John Calvin or Charles Spurgeon or... Old Testament prophecies, or the book of Malachi, and you're like, I, don't, I have no idea what's going on here. And people start to kind of look down their noses at you and say, well, if you don't know who that person is, if you don't know that theological doctrine, you're probably in the wrong church, right? Those types of things. There should never be second-class citizens in the family of God. There should never be second-class Christians in the church. If you don't know, we want you to learn and grow, but it's okay. We still love you. You can be a part of this community. And liberty was producing destructive pride. If you don't eat meat, 
you must be a second-class Christian. Now, on the other hand, the law party were rapidly descending into legalism. They were beginning to say that because they drew the line at not eating meat, every sincere Christian then should draw that same line. If you really love Jesus, then you should have this boundary in place as well. They began to create guidelines for their faith that didn't need to exist with the expectation that everyone should follow them. Okay? Let's translate that then into today's language. Because for us, it's not an issue of meat, right? I mean, maybe you're a vegetarian, but you're not a vegetarian because you heard that your steak came from the pagan temple of shiny things, and that makes you uncomfortable. So let's translate this into today's language. Drinking. It's kind of a gray area in the church. And there can be some confusion. Again, maybe you found yourself in a church that says, don't you dare. And maybe you found yourself in another church where the pastor brews beer. Okay? (laughs) There can be some confusion here. That's funny to some because I brew beer. Okay? And I'm not trying to make a a personal application here. This This will make sense. Scripture is very clear that those who follow Jesus should be self-controlled. We should absolutely refrain from drunkenness. We should be in control of ourselves. I would extrapolate that beyond we shouldn't do illicit drugs, we shouldn't smoke weed, we shouldn't be addicted to medication, whatever the case may be. Okay? We are to be self-controlled and refrain from drunkenness. That is absolutely clear from Scripture. But some Christians have taken this to mean that Christians shouldn't drink at all. Even going so far to interpret the Bible inaccurately and say Jesus didn't actually drink wine, he drank grape juice. Okay? We live in the desert. Imagine trying to keep grape juice before refrigeration without it turning to wine in your cabinet, in your closet at home. Not going to happen, right? Not going to happen. And, and, and other Christians, or there are some who say that Christians should not drink at all, even though the Bible doesn't say that. Now, other Christians say Jesus drank wine. He even made his own wine on one occasion. And they understand that within the limits of pleasing God by living moral lives, drinking in moderation is okay. Obviously, there are some who say that and they abuse it and they get drunk and that's not appropriate. But drinking within limitations with temperance is okay. So then the question is, if the church is divided here, which is it? Should we drink or should we abstain? Are we free to do it or should we have guidelines that exclude it? And Paul's answer is essentially both. Both liberty and the law. We should be governed both by freedom in Christ and also healthy healthy boundaries and rules. As long as, and here's the key point, as long as both are governed by love. Love should be the overarching theme that solidifies our liberty and our law. You are indeed then free to eat meat sacrificed to idols with the understanding that idols are nothing. It's just a rock carved to look like a fat man. Okay? Idols are nothing. You are indeed free to eat meat. You are indeed free to drink alcohol as long as you do it with temperance. But you better act in love towards your fellow brother. 
If you're throwing a dinner party for your church and you know that someone who used to engage in idol worship is going to be there and they would be uncomfortable with eating meat sacrificed to idols, you better not provide meat sacrificed to idols. Don't eat meat, okay, in the same way. If you're throwing a Super Bowl party and you've invited people from church and you know that one of them is a recovering alcoholic, don't bring beer to that Super Bowl party. Okay, don't provide the booze. It doesn't make sense. You should surrender yourself to their comfort level out of love for them, for the sake of the body of Christ. So we walk this fine line then in liberty of our freedom in Christ, but also living under the law of righteousness with healthy boundaries and guidelines. And the way that we walk this line successfully is through this lens of love. This is where I want to spend the last couple of minutes. Paul says in verse 3, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is where transformation begins in the heart of the Christian. Transformation starts right here. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. It's not through sheer will. It's not even really through our effort at all. It's not because of our love for God. True transformation begins in the heart of the Christian through understanding that God knows us and loves us. He knows every single detail about who you are. All of the good stuff, all of the bad stuff, all of the insecurities, all of the self-consciousness, all of the fears, all of the failures, all of the concerns and worries, all of it. He knows all of it. There is nothing that you can hide from him. And his stance towards you is still love. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. I think a great example of this is my children. Okay? They love me. And they do it pretty well. Uh, This morning, I actually meant to bring it up here. This morning, I got a card from them. And when I opened it, it was this baby that somehow in the card, the baby moves and makes farting noises. (laughs) I know. Because, did you see it? I'll show you after church if you want to see it. It's hilarious. But my, my children love me, and they do it well by giving me cards like that, okay? I mean, when I come home from work, they bum-rush me at the door. Like, I can't even get three steps in the door without children tangling up my feet, and I'm tripping over. I leave the house, and, and if I don't express my love for them, they cry, and they call me, okay? They're heartbroken. Each day when I wake up, assuming that they got enough sleep, they have beaming faces to see me in the morning. This morning... I heard my door creep open at like 5 o'clock, and I look up, and there was Aiden, and he had this huge smile on his face. And I said, Aiden, you want to come cuddle with me? And he said, yes. And he came, and he ran, and he just laid in bed with me for like 20 minutes. Okay? my, My children, they love me. They're beaming with joy and happiness in my presence. And they love me well, and they love me deeply. But the fact is that all of their love for me is really just in response to my love for them, isn't it? I mean, think about it. I fed them bottles every day of their life for many years. I changed all of their nasty diapers. I, well, not all of them. Leanne obviously changed some. I changed a small portion of their nasty diapers. I pour out affection on them. I love them. I bring them surprises home from work sometimes. I, I nurture them, I protect them, I provide for them, I discipline them so they know what's good and true and right and wrong. 
I clean up after them, sometimes three times a day. I, I literally provide for and take care of their every single need. In, in fact, the truth is my children are so dependent on me right now that should I withdraw my care for them, they would die. That's how codependent they are. But I love them deeply. And I care for them constantly. And because of that relationship, they respond to me in love. They love me too. And our great love for God and his great love for us is really no different. I mean, the life of the believer is no different than this example. Our love for God pours forth from his great love for us. We understand the fact that he knows us and loves us. We're people who've tasted the wonder and the joy of the love of God. We are people who have understood the depth of God's great love for us, that he would sacrifice his son on the cross. I mean, think about that. Would I allow any of my children to go through that sort of torment and suffering for somebody else? I tell you, no, I would not. But God did, because he loves us that much. And we are people who respond to the revelation of God's love in the way that he pours out his affection on us, right? The way that he changes the soiled diapers of our sin. The way that he nurtures us and protects us, disciplines us so we grow, cleans up after us, and literally provides for our every single need. You may think that you do it yourself, but it's only by the grace of God. And he provides all of it for you. Lou, I'm sorry, John, 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved us. An often quoted verse in the Bible. We love in response to his love for us. And this is the heart of where we find the capacity to walk this fine line of liberty and freedom and law and guidelines. Okay? Out of God's love for us, we're transformed. And the calling of the Christian is to press deeper into the love of God so that we are ever more transformed into his likeness. That's our calling. To find more and more of his great love for us. And as our heart changes inwardly in our love and devotion to him, what happens is our actions change outwardly in our love for his church and for his creation. For the souls of the people that he created and loves as passionately as he loves us. And the principles that we live by, those begin to change as well. Instead of asking ourselves questions like this, how far can I get within grace? I mean, what's the furthest I can go in the direction towards sin and immorality and still be acceptable? You know, is it okay to do this or that kind of action and still call myself a Christian? What's the furthest I can go? What's the most immorality I can get away with and still be free in Christ? Instead of asking those kinds of questions, we naturally begin to ask the kinds of questions that are centered on God's love for us and for his church and his creation. Questions that I would say are questions of love and service. Principles of selflessness and sacrifice. The very same principles that Jesus exemplified for us. These are the questions. Let me read them for you. The questions that the liberty-zealous, law-abiding Christian who is governed by love begins to ask. 
What do I love more? My freedom to live however I choose or Jesus? What do I love more? My freedom to live however I choose? Or do I love Jesus? What do I love more? My strict rules and guidelines for how I live my life and how other people should live their lives? Do I love that more or do I love Jesus? Do I love Jesus enough to really, truly, and passionately sacrifice for his people, sacrifice for the church, and sacrifice for the lost? And am I willing to give up things of minor importance for the sake of things with major importance? Would I be willing to give up my beer if I was in a community of people who struggled with alcoholism? Am I willing to give up something of minor importance for something of major importance? And finally, will I give up this world and all of its fleeting pleasures and promises for the eternal joy of being forever known and loved by God? I read it fast. Let me read it again, because this is an exceptional question for you to consider. Will I give up this world and all of its fleeting pleasures and promises for the eternal joy of being forever known and loved by God? How will you answer and respond to a question like that? 1 Corinthians 13.13, we're going to get there in a couple weeks, and this is what Paul is building towards. We're going to get there, but 13.13 through chapter 14, verse 1, it says this simple and beautiful truth. So now, faith... Hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love. Let me pray. God, I pray that we would know your great love for us. God, I ask that anybody in this room who is just burdened under feelings of insecurity, burdened with feelings of of self-hatred or self-loathing or self-doubt, burdened under the, the anxieties of sin, God, burdened under the image that this world says that we have to have, God, burdened under financial problems or struggling to find a career, a job, God, I pray that those of us in this room who are suffering from those types of burdens would be enlightened by the truth of the fact that you know us and you love us. There is no dusty, scary corner of our lives that you are not already aware of. And you love us. God, I thank you that we don't have to fix those things first before we come to you and find grace. That you are already standing like a loving father with open arms ready to embrace us as we come back to you. And Jesus, I pray that our church would be a church that is guided by love. That we would both seek to be law-abiding in the sense that we love guidelines that help us be good and true and right. But God, may we also live in the freedom of what it is that you did for us on the cross. And over all of that, may we see the theme of your great love for us. 
running through your church, running through your actions, running through your body. And may we respond to that love. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.